Welcome to A Certain Age, a show for women on life after 50 who are unafraid to age out loud. I'm your host, Katie Fogarty. All May Long, A Certain Age is looking at relationships from a variety of angles and exploring how they evolve in midlife. Today, I'm joined by Naval Aviator Rear Admiral Nancy LaCour, who is currently serving as Chief of Staff, U.S. Naval Forces Europe, U.S. Naval Forces Africa, Sixth Fleet, Naples, Italy. She has served in Afghanistan and Djibouti. She's a helicopter aviator with approximately 1,300 flight hours in military aircraft. She holds numerous awards and commendations. And last but certainly not least, she is the mom of six kids. She joins me today to talk about love of country and life as a military family. Welcome, Nancy. Thanks, Katie. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I'm so delighted to have you uh, joining me today. Can you just sort of set the stage and tell our listeners where you're joining me from and what brings you there? Yeah. So I'm calling in from uh, Naples, Italy. Um, and I've been here since last fall when the Navy gave me orders to serve uh, at the command you just identified, Naval Forces Europe, Naval Forces Africa, and U.S. Sixth Fleet. Um, and that, that is the headquarters command that I'm at right now, um, as you said, the chief of staff. So I've um, been here for um, gosh, about eight or nine months and uh, was previously assigned to the same headquarters um, for the two years preceding that in a different position and in a part-time status. So um, got to bring the family with me for this move, which was fantastic. What a fantastic place to be with your family, Nancy. Um, and you have such a cool career that brought you there. I have had so many women on this show who have fantastic jobs. I've had uh, you know, numerous authors, many doctors, but you are our first naval aviator. How did you decide to make the military a career? Well, I got my initial um, urging to join the Navy was from my father. Um, he had uh, attended Holy Cross on an NROTC scholarship, and uh, he was the one who encouraged me to uh, think about doing that myself. And so when you do that, um, go to college on an ROTC scholarship. You, you get a year free, like literally. So they pay for your tuition and you don't incur an obligation to serve until, you after, until after you start your second year on scholarship. So I assumed I would most likely walk away after that free freshman year, um, but I didn't. And then I kind of assumed after I got commissioned, I would do the minimum time required and then walk away, but I didn't. Um, and then I married another naval aviator a few years down the road and we had our first child and once again, I thought I would walk away, uh, and I didn't. And I sort of fell into this career, and I'm still here 32 years later. That, that's amazing. I should let all of our listeners know that actually Nancy and I went to college together. We went to Holy Cross College. Uh, Nancy was a year ahead of me. I remember seeing you walking around campus in your uniform. I had some other friends who were in Navy ROTC as well. And Nancy and I have stayed connected because her sister, Sue, is one of my one of my dearest friends from school. So it's it's so amazing that um, you've been in this job for, for, for 30 years. Like, what does that career trajectory look like? So when you get out of college, you know, what comes next? Do you have to do additional training? Walk us through a little bit. Yeah, so um, for the first 10 years, I would say my career was pretty typical for a naval aviator. Um, I learned how to fly helicopters, and then, which can take a, a fair amount of time, anywhere from a year to 18 months. Um, and then I got assigned to a squadron in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, that was sea duty, which meant that I was going to deploy. And so I would deploy on board ships as part of a helicopter detachment of around 25 to 30 people. Um, I was lucky enough to deploy to the Mediterranean, 
also got to go into the Arabian Gulf and then later had a tour uh, deployment in the North Atlantic uh, in the winter, which was interesting to say the least. Um, so after that initial sea duty, then you go to shore duty, which means you don't deploy and you just you know have a kind of a nine to five type job. So for that, I was assigned as a flight instructor at our helicopter training squadron in San Diego. And that is where um, I was. I was married to my husband at that point, and we were pretty set on having a family. So after we kind of uh, spent a few months debating which one of us was going to leave the Navy, me or my husband, I ultimately decided that I would transition to the reserve component of the Navy um, and made the decision that I was not actively going to fly anymore um, because of the time commitment incurred and knowing the impact of having time out of the cockpit due to what I anticipated would be a few pregnancies. Um, so again, kind of like I just talked about, I thought I would... Um, you know, just kind of do my 20 years, 20 years gets you retirement in the Navy. So I kind of thought, oh, I'll just finish out my, the next 10 years in reserve and then I'll, I'll retire. And, and I didn't. So <laughs> it seemed that the reserve was the right fit for me and my family. And I was able to um, uh, kind of manage both, you know, do a lot of reserve time when I wanted to scale back when I needed to. Um, so like I said, I did not fly in the reserve, but I had a lot of, um, air command and control type experience in the reserve. Um, and then finally worked my way up until I was able to get into like a command position was, you know, running a reserve unit on my own. Um, so I had two opportunities to do that as a captain. Um, one of those opportunities, oddly enough, I was supporting the current command I'm at, Naval Forces Europe and Africa, in a reserve um, status. And then uh, that gave me the opportunity to do a lot of travel to Africa, particularly in the Gulf of Guinea region, which was uh, very warm and very interesting. Um, and as you mentioned at the very beginning, I was mobilized twice during my time in the reserve, which means I was involuntarily brought back on active duty, brought back to a full-time status. Um, and both of those times meant I was going to be away from my family. So that was uh, certainly challenging for all of us. First time was in Afghanistan. And then the second time I served in Djibouti, uh, commanding a base there. And then fortunate enough to be selected for promotion to Admiral while I was in Djibouti. Uh, and then even more fortunate enough, I got to um, do two tours as an Admiral here in this command. So, And so that's, uh, so when you were in Afghanistan, when you were in Djibouti, you, how long were those tours? They were both a year. Um, the one, the tour in Afghanistan was cut short a bit. Um, I ended up doing about nine to 10 months on that one, but uh, both planned to be a year, including some training ahead of time. So you know, probably all total about 14 to 16 months. And so how do, how do you make that work out? Because you do, you, you, we mentioned at the top of the show, you have six kids. You talked about how you were able to, while you were during that decade of, of sort of shore duty and in the reserves, uh, be present. But for these times that were you away, how did, how did you navigate that? Because that's, that's challenging for any working parent when they're, when they're traveling for work. But for an extended period of time, how did, that, how did your family make that work out? Um, you know, it was, uh, very intimidating to think about it because I had always, I was the primary caregiver. Um, so the thought of not being the primary caregiver was, uh, was, was really challenging for me. Um, but I knew that like my husband, Pat is probably the best dad in the world because I can walk out the door with zero prep. And I know that um, I'll still have six kids when I get back. So, uh, you know, 
<laughs> they might not be in the same state and the house might not look the same, but I was pretty confident it was all going to work out. So um, between Pat and then, uh, I mean, really just um, my, our extended family, my mom uh, would come and stay and help out and, uh, you know, pick the kids up and do some of the, you know, after school stuff. And then the, it takes a village yeah. to, to yeah. I think it takes a village no matter what your job is, because there's it always, absolutely does. you know, you, you need people to help with the carpools and to, to sort of be a confidant or to, to sort of step in. You know, when you're the mom of multiple children, you know, you can't be at every back to school night or every school play because there are inevitably conflicts. So it's great to have, you know, uh, your your husband, Pat, and your mom to, to kind of pitch in. So how about the kids, though? I mean, you know. Sometimes kids are, are sad when their, their their parent walks out the door. You know, do, did your do you see that your family views your job as part of like a calling for the family? Because it really takes all of your um, your kids to to kind of be a part of this to make it work. It does, yeah. That that is very true. And um, and I, I recall. I mean, the first time I left um, for that, you know, almost a year to Afghanistan. Some of them were were young. My youngest was four. Um, the oldest is 14. So um, it was, you know, everybody handles it in their own way, but I would say overall, everybody was just sad and teary and, and, and weepy when I left and it was, you know, communications were different even 10 years ago. So they weren't, they didn't have phones, you know, so it was dad sitting them in front of a, uh, you know, a laptop on the weekend trying to Skype or something and not working so well. And then the second time I left, it was, it was a little bit different. They were a little bit older. And uh, I think that one thing that kind of, sticks with me when I broke it to the kids that I was going to have to leave again for an extended period of time. And this was just less than five years later. Um, my youngest daughter was like, I mean, crying, instantly crying. And she looks at me and she goes, mom, I'm really proud of what you do. So even in her own pain, she was able to see, you know, that I was doing something that, that, that needed to be done. That's so powerful. What a, what a, what a fabulous memory. And you know, that, that sort of is a great segue into the question that I want to ask you, which is, you know, you, you talked about how you you first tried this on for size as a career in college <laughs> for a year and thought, well, you know, let me see. Um, and then you wound up sticking with it and making it a, an enormous part of your life. Do you see being a part of the military as a, you know, a calling? I mean, it's a job, but it, it also in some ways, you know, can be a calling because you're, you're serving something larger than yourself. What inspires, you know, do, do you see it that way? Yeah, I definitely do. Um, and, and I think most of us who serve see it that way. Um, you know, there, there's, of course, there's a percentage that it is a job and it's a way to get to college for some. But I would say overall, most of the people I'm serving with do see it as a calling. Um, family is a big driver for me. And and by that, um, I think that kind of sort of feeds into the Navy being a calling because the Navy is a family. Um, 32 years and you're still running into people, you know, that, you know, you know, through college and ROTC or that you met in flight school. And, and it's just that constant, um, you know, seeing people again and again, and it, it becomes just one big family of support because uh, we all know what the other ones are going through. Right. To have that, that, that community is probably so important because the job is, is incredibly unique. There aren't, you know, that many, um, naval aviators or there are not that many people who've done these different types of deployments. So I imagine that even your your friends and your in your sort of uh 
daily life probably don't get it the same way. So I want to I want to ask about what we don't get in just a minute. We're going to take a very quick break. But when we return, I want to explore, you know, what don't people like me who are not serving understand about this community? We'll be back in a minute. Menopause is inevitable, but the symptoms that accompany it don't have to be. Meet Kindra, the company that will make your peri to post-menopause journey smoother. As a big believer that midlife is more fun with girlfriends, I absolutely love that Kindra cultivates community and shares resources so you feel supported at every turn. Their private Facebook group is a place to ask questions and connect with other women navigating the same terrain. All May, a certain age is exploring different types of relationships and how they evolve in midlife. Kindra also offers products that can support romantic relationships, including the Daily Vaginal Lotion, which helps lessen pain during intimacy, and the Core Supplement, which is clinically proven to boost libido. Who doesn't want better pain-free sex? Kindra has a generous offer for certain age listeners, any first-time purchasers or subscribers get 20% off anything. Use code KD20 at checkout. That's K-A-T-I-E-2-0. Head to ourkindra.com for menopause essentials that work. Okay, Nancy, we're, we're back from our, our break, and I, I want to ask that question again. You know, What don't people who serve in the military understand about it? What do you wish non-active military people knew what it's like to be part of this community? Um, so a couple of things. I think one that kind of jumps into my mind would be that um, that you look at me at 32 years, like I had to have that calling 32 years ago. So we grow our executives, um, which is, I think, different, right, from uh, corporate America. Yes. Uh, so the folks, the folks who are going to be our admirals, you know, in a couple decades are the ones who are getting commissioned right now out of NROTC or Naval Academy. Um, and so it is a, a big investment in people. I know the Navy's all about platforms and carriers and, and jets, but we make a huge investment in our people. And I, I would really like, you know, if anybody wants to take anything away from that to understand how much the Navy values the people and how much time we and money we invest in our people, because that that's how we get our leaders. Yeah, that makes so much sense. That that it's that the people are sort of the greatest resource. So when you talk about the Navy investing in you, what does that look like? Is it education? Is it training? Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, right out of the gate, flight school was a pretty significant investment in me. Um, you know, I mean, they paid me to be um, an ensign or lieutenant JG. You know, so they paid me a salary, and then they paid for all that flight training, which I think would be, you know tons of money if I had had to do that on my own outside of the military. Right. And then there is training. There's career milestones where they want you to get education and they give you opportunities to get education. Sometimes um, send you to a civilian uh, university for a year or two to get education, you know, take your uniform off, hang it up for two years, but still get paid. So it's, uh, we definitely value our people and we, we try to get more creative about how we, um, can, uh, you know, accommodate people like Pat and I, where, you know, you're both in the military and, and offer solutions that will, you know, help keep those families together and in for the long run. You know, Nancy, several years ago, I spoke on a panel and um, it was at a conference for women business owners. And one of the panelists was a naval aviator as well. 
And she asked the audience a question about um, she did one of these things where she said, show of hands, if you have been in the, the military at any point. And she looked around the room. There were probably 3000 people in this room and not a single hand went up. And she mm. was shocked because that's obviously not the response she was expecting. <laughs> but, you know, and, and, and I was a little surprised myself. I mean, here we were in, you know, midtown Manhattan. So maybe not necessarily, you know, near an active military base. But it, 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 it was very telling about the fact that there were there's large constituencies that have no firsthand experience with this organization, you know, of the military. And so that there is right. probably like a real disconnect um, about, um, you know, what it, what it's like. So this is why I'm so thrilled that you're on the show, giving us a little window and a little backstory um, about what, it, what it's like to be a working mom in the Navy, what it's like to be a military family. Do you find that... Um, Military families kind of stick together because you you do have this commonality. Is that important, or you know, do you find that you have people you know in your life your life who who are like those three thousand people who didn't put their hands up, who don't know much about the military? Yeah, so I think we have a uh, a good mix of both in in our lives. Um, we, we've been in Norfolk for until we came to Italy. We were in Norfolk for eighteen years, which is uh, the home of the largest Navy base. So there was plenty of uh, of Navy families around us, but there were also um, not. There were also a lot of folks who did not have that um, experience. And many of our closest friends were not part of the military. But the, the nice thing is when you encounter somebody who, who knows the Navy because, or really any, any branch of the military, because they served, because a cousin served, because their dad served, there is an instant connection because, because you understand the lifestyle and you understand the commitment. Nancy, several years ago, you launched an effort to honor uh, the U.S. military women who've served our nation since 9-11, uh, especially those that made the ultimate sacrifice while supporting combat op operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. This uh, was called Valor Run. I would love for you to walk us through how you launched this and let our listeners know about this, this uh, effort. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Katie. I would like to talk about that because it was... Um it was, was, and is very important to me, um, because it combined two things I care about, uh, quite a bit, um, running and women who serve our nation. Um, for me, it was a, um, kind of a, a journey, uh, of how to integrate myself back into normal life when I got back from Afghanistan. And so I did a lot of running and it just sort of, um, kind of was like, well, I need to do something with this running. And then combine that with a trip to the Women's Memorial, which is up outside of Arlington Cemetery, um, and started flipping through a book and seeing pictures of women and then recognizing, whoa, these women were all killed, um, you know, in Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, and I had no idea. As a woman who had just served in Afghanistan, I really had no idea um, who had been killed, how many, what services. And so I was like, you know what? I, I can do something about this. And so that's why I decided to do this Valor Run. And I ran um, one mile for 161 women. That was the number at the time who had been uh, killed in those two campaigns. Um, and I did it over seven days and used it to raise money for two other nonprofit organizations and then ultimately turned that Valor Run into its own little nonprofit. And so tell us about the name Valor Run, because it's got a really beautiful genesis. Yeah, it does. So the uh, the longer um, title was Valor Run, uh, 
um, Valor Knows No Gender. And that piece of it, the Valor Knows No Gender, was a, a quote from uh, President Obama, um, sort of recognizing that, um, it, you know, war doesn't matter and they don't care. When you get into, into combat, um, it doesn't matter what your gender is because you're all there and you're all equally at risk. Right. And, and that you're, that you're serving together. Uh, I, I just, I also love the word valor because it has such uh, poetry and it's just such a way of talking about patriotism in a way that feels so beautiful. So you ran 161 miles. Am I, am I correct? <laughs> That's pretty impressive. I, how, how long did you have to, tra- you said you did it over seven days, but how long did it take you to, to train and run 161 miles in a, you know, in a week's period? The training took a lot longer than the run. So I, tra- I, tra- I trained for about nine months, um, but I was eager to train. Like I said, I just was like, I was running a lot with not real, with no real purpose. And so it gave me a purpose and kind of focused my running. And, uh, and I was like, you know, if I can get to day one without being hurt, I will be able to do this. And so I was very focused on training the right way, got to day one and, um, I, and I can tell you, I did not run one mile by myself of those 161 miles. I had people I've never met before join me along the road and run with me. So it was just a, a very fantastic um, experience. I remember seeing the images on your website when you were doing this run and just being really knocked out. I mean, it was it was small children. It was, you know, mm-hmm. people who were, you know, much older than than, you know, than you are who were running. It was just it was such a beautiful people in uniform, people in you know, not. It was just such a, a wonderful mix of, of, of people. Um, were your kids involved with that with you? Is that something that you were able to pull them into? Yes. And then some of them are still involved in it too. So yeah, they um, they all came along. My, my husband drove an RV and um, brought them along. Not They didn't all come along for every day of their run, but um, you know, when we were near to Norfolk, they, you know, joined in the RV. Um, many of them came on training runs with me, some of them on their bikes. Um, some of them actually ran with me and then uh, all met me at the finish line, which was really, um, really moving. It's such a great way of including your family and something that's so important to you. And and you, you know, you've talked a little bit in the show about how, you know, Pat, your husband was in the Navy too. Is he still currently in the Navy? What's his status? He retired um, two years ago okay. after uh, 29 years of service. Okay. And then you have a son who's also um, up and coming. Is that correct? That is correct. I have a son who is a second class midshipman at the Naval Academy. It's amazing. This has really been a family, um, like a family experience for you. Let's let's shift gears for a minute, though, and talk about uh, aging a little bit, Nancy, because you know that the, the premise of this show is women who are aging out loud and who are uh, making the most of this next chapter. You have been in the military for 32 years, right? Uh, now that you're in midlife, do you feel that your relationship to your uh, to your job or to the way you experience uh, patriotism, your relationship to your country has changed in any way? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think as I get older, um, I have a new perspective on service, particularly as I observe our youth committing to serve. Like you mentioned my son, I mean, but not just about him, because I have an opportunity to see our young sailors on ships, to see our young um, uh, security personnel when I was in Djibouti, the youngest people on the base were the folks who did security on the base perimeter for us. Um, You know, kids 18 to 20 years old, and they are the first line of defense between, you know, danger and us. And and it's that really that I think uh, being an older person in the service, looking at the youth being like, 
wow, it's just amazing that we still have people who commit to serve in our all-volunteer force. And thank goodness we do. It's so wonderful that people are willing to put themselves in service to our country. I, I remember hearing a story years ago from my father when he talked about coming home from Vietnam. And he, you know, was coming home from the airport. He was in a taxi. He was still, I think, wearing his uniform. And the taxi driver, you know, asked him about what he was up to. And he said he just had gotten home. And the taxi driver screeched over, pulled over, hopped out and gave him a salute and just said, you know, thank you for your service. And this is a story that my dad has told over and over again, because I don't Mm -hmm. think that we thank people enough for their service to our country. I don't think we thank people enough who are you know, keeping the trains on the tracks for us during the, the pandemic. And it's it's wonderful to have the opportunity to, to recognize them. So I love that you shared that you look at these young uh, naval, you know, um, staff members and, and you're inspired by them. What would you say to somebody who is considering the military? Most of the listeners on my show are past the age where this is going to be a career option. But if they, <laughs> although I do say you're never too late and you're never too old, but you might, you might be a little bit too late. to. You become, might be in this case, yeah. <laughs> we might be in this case. But if they were, yeah. if they were talking to somebody in their family, like, you know, their, their children, their nieces, their nephews, the people in their, their lives, and they wanted to let um, them know that this career was out there, what would you be saying to them? What would you be saying to somebody in your own life that you might want to encourage to think about the military? You know, I get to ask this question a lot, and I do talk to a lot of young people, um, you know, my peers and, and people below me are constantly asking me to talk to, you know, high schoolers and college. And, and, uh, and I would say that you, you can't convince anybody to do this. I really think it's, it's inherently in somebody or it's inherently not in somebody to do it. But what you can do is educate them on the opportunities that the military brings, you know, a, you know, it's, it's job security, first of all, because we're always going to need a military, um, you know, great benefits, um, educational opportunities. Uh, so, you know, it's more of an education piece than an actual, I think, trying to convince people that they, you know, that they want to serve. Um, because I think people have to come to that conclusion on their own. And just like with my son, it was never like, oh, you, know, you should go to the Naval Academy, you should go join the Navy. I mean, he came to that conclusion on his own he, when he debated about, do I go to regular college or do I go to not college at the Naval Academy? Um, we did not weigh in at all because I would, there was no way I would push somebody to not go to college and go to the Naval Academy. Right. That's such smart advice. I mean, I, I, I think you can't push people to do anything, honestly. You know, I, I'm a mom of three. And, um, you know, you can guide your kids, you can um, educate them, you can show them different different options. But ultimately, we need to be in charge of our own lives in order to um, to really succeed. And it makes so much sense that this type of job, which is really, you know, requires such a commitment, requires a lot of sacrifice. You know, you you've alluded to, you know, it was hard at different times when you, you you had to go serve, you had to say goodbye to your children. I mean, there's sacrifice involved with this job that your regular job does not have, right? Your, right. you know, your nine to five corporate job doesn't require that level of sacrifice necessarily. So to have it be a calling makes so much sense. But I think you've, you've really shared that there's such a special community that's on the other side of that once you make that decision. Nancy, it Mm -hmm. has been so much fun learning more about the Navy, about hearing about Valor Run, hearing about um, how you make this work as a working mom of six. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I so loved having you. It was great talking to you, and I really appreciate the opportunity, um, really, to talk about the Navy. Thank you so much, Nancy. 
This wraps A Certain Age, a show for women over 50 who are aging without apology. And this also wraps our May shows and our month-long look at relationships from a variety of angles. We kicked off the month with Melissa Schultz, who coaches us on navigating an empty nest as May's graduation season kicks into high gear and the kids move out and on. Jody Day joined us to talk about life as a childless woman in a culture that puts motherhood on a pedestal. We dive into sex and dating after a marriage ends with memoirist Laura Friedman Williams and sex expert Tracy Cox, author of Great Sex After 50, walks us through must-know info on age-proofing your libido. Join me next week as we kick off June when we feature four women entrepreneurs building powerhouse companies and brands. See you next time. And until then, age boldly, beauties.